Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. In this next section, Christians believe in the eternal origins of God's Word. Look at John 12. John chapter 12, verses 47 through 50. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Verse 49, for I have not spoken of myself, but the father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So the Lord is telling you here, the words were given to me, and I'm giving them to you, and these words are everlasting. They have eternal origins. Look at John 17. John 17, verses 5 through 8. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, uh, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now that's important, right? Jesus didn't just show up in a manger and, and begin to exist. He himself, he himself is eternal. Look back at verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. So the word of God is eternal. It, it's, it didn't, it didn't, the word of God was pinned down in the world at a specific time by a specific person, but that's not when they began to exist. God's word is everlasting. It's eternal, has eternal origins. That's, a, that's an important concept that we need to keep in mind. Uh, Psalm 119. Under the same idea, the eternal origins of God. Psalm 119. And verse 89, forever, now this is, again, this is one of those 
one of those places I like to stop and ask people, what does that mean? <laughs> Forever. Okay, so then at what point would this not be true? There can't be a point. If forever means forever, then at no time was this idea not true. All right, verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That's not going to be undone. That can't, you can't go back on that. God's not going to change that. That's why it's so important that when we say we believe something or we're going to apply our lives to something, it's, it's so important that it's based on the word of God because everything else is changing. Let's say God did speak to you. Are you going to remember what he said 10 years from now and how he said it and exactly what was said? You can't even wake up and remember a dream. You think you're going to remember everything God said at some point in time? But what if God wrote everything he wanted you to know down in a book that is unchanging, that is settled forever, and that has eternal origins? That's pretty dependable. And I would, I would stick with that. The word of God is relevant and applicable forever. What does relevant mean? Somebody tell me what they think the word relevant means. You're going to hear some words in this class that, you know, as, as Ugandans and Luganda speakers and whatever you speak and whatever you speak, <laughs> you, may not, you may not be as used to and as comfortable with, and so I want to make sure you grasp them. What does it mean to be Relevant. Again? No. So for something to be relevant, you think you have an idea? It is reliable, but it means it, it fits this purpose. It fits our needs today. It fits our needs now. It, you know, it, it's the word of God never became irrelevant. So if, if you say something is irrelevant, it means I don't need it. It's, it's not, it doesn't fit this situation. It doesn't fit our time. It doesn't fit our lives. It's irrelevant to us. But the Word of God is always relevant. It's always up to date. People like to say, you know, that old book written by a bunch of shepherds out in a field or fishermen. You know, it's, it's antique. No, nobody, nobody believes that anymore. That's not true. You can open this book and it will tell you about 2022. <laughs> It will, it will describe people so accurately, it's scary, because it's God's Word. And that's, we can see that in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, and verse 8. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. It, it, it will always stand. It will always be relevant. It will always have a purpose. It will always be helpful. At no point could you say, well, I guess this verse is outdated, so let me delete it. And that, that's one of the things people say uh, about the Bible, the King James Bible. They say it has archaic words or words that are, that are obsolete, meaning that nobody uses them anymore. Well, there's a big problem with that. The most read book in the world, even today, is the King James Bible. So that means that there are still millions of people who use these words so they're not archaic and they're not obsolete. <laughs> to be obsolete means that it's, nobody uses them anymore. 
It's an old term that nobody uses. Well, we, we use them every time we open this book. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Bible school class, every time you read it at home, every time you read it to your family. I still use these words. So it's not archaic. It's not obsolete. It is relevant forever. They would like for it to be declared irrelevant, but that's, that's the entire reason they hate it. It's because it's still so true. And it's like holding up a a mirror in front of themselves, and they don't like what they see. And rather than becoming subject to what God said about them, they want to break the mirror. <laughs> well, you're not going to break the Word of God. It's not going to happen. You, you need to do what it says. The Word of God is more than relevant forever. It will be preserved forever. The Lord Himself will do the preserving. This is extremely important. You you have to remember this. God will preserve His own Word. What does preserve mean? To keep it. That's a that's a very good way to put it. You know, you t- sometimes people take uh, fruit and they 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 preserve it by putting it in a jar and and they you know they put some liquids in there and they intend to keep it for a long long time. Well, what's a long time for God? Well, according to the rest of his word, eternal. It's settled in heaven, not one jot, not one tittle. But this is what's important. Who's doing the preserving? God is. And we're going to see that repeatedly here very soon. Look at Matthew 24. And uh, we, we've already quoted it several times. We've talked about it several times. But uh, let's stir up our pure minds by way of remembrance and look at it again. Matthew 24, verses 24 through 26 must be what I meant here. Because I put 34 through 26. That makes sense. You see, that's why, you see, that's why God, God's Word can't be perfect because men make mistakes. <laughs> we don't need any extra talking over here in this corner. So <clears throat> You'll have to run laps up and down the hill if you continue. So. Matthew 24, 34-36. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass but of that day and hour knoweth no man, not, not, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So God's word is eternal. So that, let me fix that real quick. So some of you come in here and try to read this. And 34 through 36. All right, so the Lord makes this statement in reference to the end of the world and his second coming. The Lord, in Matthew 24, he's teaching about the end of the world. He says, yeah, the, the world's going to end, but not my word. I'm coming back. It's still settled in heaven. It's, you know, we're not, we're not losing the word of God. It is settled forever. All right, so we can be confident. We can be confident in God's word. Now, <clears throat> that is the Christian's view of the word of God. That is, that is, let me rephrase that. That is the Bible-believing Christian's view of the word of God. There's a lot of people claim to be Christians, and they don't believe anything we just went over. They don't believe God's word is eternal. They don't believe it's everlasting. They don't believe it's settled in heaven. They don't believe that you can really trust it. You can just sort of kind of generally use it. 
It's, it's good moral teaching, but it's not the foundation for, for life and godliness. And that's not, that's not a biblical Christian's view of the Word of God. Now, you've got to determine for yourself where you stand in regards to those things. You've got to determine if what, you just, what we just went over, verse by verse by verse, about what the Bible says about itself, if you believe that or not. And why? And can you demonstrate it? And can you show it? Now, the next section is going to be the preservation of the Old Testament. Now, here's where we're going to shift gears a little bit. And we're going to be talking about a lot of things that are uh, both biblical and historical. The, the two work hand in hand to prove to you where the Word of God is today. You can follow the, the line of manuscripts throughout history. They come from, from several different areas. We'll, we'll see this later. You don't have to worry about it now. But you have that which comes from Alexandria. And you have that which comes from Antioch. And when you when you and, and it's this is very simplistic. We're going to get into more detail. But when you trace it out and you look back, you'll you'll see that generally speaking, here you have the Alexandrian text. You have the Western text, and you have the Caesarian text. These three fall under what we generally call the, the lines that come from Alexandria. The mentality of these men from all lines, from, from all three of them, is that the Word of God is subject to my opinion. And the Word of God is subject to, to my religion. And so when I come across a text or when I come across a passage that I don't like, I just edit it and change it. And that became the scholarly idea. These men, these men dominate Christian scholarship today. So you can have great men stand in front of you with a King James Bible and say, well, this word in the Greek, what, what just happened? I, I, you, you told me you believe this Bible. And now you're telling me to leave this Bible and go somewhere else to find out what this Bible says. Now, those of you that speak English well, how often do you look up an English word in a Greek dictionary? Never. It is the dumbest idea that anybody has ever come up with. But if you can make it sound intellectual, everybody will buy it. Any man that stands in front of you with the perfect word of God and then tells you to go somewhere else to understand this book you should be concerned about that man. I don't care who he is and how great you think he is. That man, if he is great, in, in our definition of great men who, who have been faithful to the Lord throughout history, he has been deceived. He has been taught that he can't trust this book. And so in order to be theological and in order to be intellectual, you have to leave this book and go to the Greek. Now, here's a big problem with that. They all say go to the Greek. 
Okay, what happened here? Why do they never say, well, in the Hebrew, this word is? Because the Old Testament wasn't written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew. Some of it, a tiny portion, was written in Aramaic. So they'll tell you, well, in the Greek, so God apparently could handle Hebrew to English, but he couldn't handle Greek to English. That's a pretty weak God. That's not the God of the Bible. Right? Now over here from Antioch, you have the Byzantine text, which is also, these are, these are uh, so closely related, you, you, you can't separate them. You have the traditional text. These two, the, these two texts, along with the old Latin Vulgate, that's important. This is important. Old Latin, not the one that came after it, produced by Origen and Jerome and that crowd from Alexandria. This is how devilish people are. Uh, the man was commissioned, and we're going to get into all this later, to, to produce a new Bible. He did that from corrupt manuscripts, produced this Bible, and called it the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate already existed, and it was, it was, as far as anybody can tell, the perfect Word of God in Latin. Why would you produce a new, a new Bible called the Latin Vulgate? Because you're trying to steer people away from where they can find the Word of God. The Roman Catholic Church adopted the new Latin Vulgate as their book. And if you kept reading the old Latin Vulgate, which is what God's people did, they would put you to death. You either read their new Latin Vulgate or you die. Those are your options. Sounds wonderful, right? So let's bring it up to speed. You have the King James Version. And about 200 years after it's produced... You have the revised version. You see what's happening here? This version, so this comes from here. This comes from here, from the Alexandrian text. And it was produced by men by the name of Westcott and Hort. They are two devils in the flesh. And we're going to talk about them in depth. I'm just introducing you to some ideas right now, tonight. We're going to go through right now the, the, a very general history of the preservation of the Old Testament. But everything you see on the board right now, this, these are the key elements in the battle that became the King James Bible. And against the King James Bible. The, these, these three were used by a man named Erasmus to produce what... Is called the Textus Receptus. That's an E, in case you didn't know. <clears throat> so, uh, people today, and this is, so you take that same man who stands with the King James Bible and tells you you got to go to the Greek. If you ask him, and I often do, because they love my personality and I want to make sure they get a full dose of it. 
is this the word of God? Is this the perfect word of God? Yes or no? Is the King James Bible the word of God? And this is what they'll say. Well, the textus receptus is... uh, No, 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 no. I didn't ask you about the textus receptus. You don't have the textus receptus. You couldn't read the textus receptus if you did have it. You don't know, you, you, you don't know anything about what's in the Texas Receptus. I asked you about the King James Bible, and you're telling me about a Greek text. Do you see the problem? They don't believe this is the Word of God. They think, well, it's, it's the best we have to work with for now. And that's wrong. It's the wrong mentality. And again, that's what I hope to demonstrate throughout the course of this class. And most of, our, most of our circles that do believe in this book, they'll tell you that it came from the Texas Receptus. Well, that's, that's, very, that's partially true. The Texas Receptus was the Greek foundation used for the King James Bible, but the King James translators were unbelievable linguistic scholars And they used every single text in existence, and they had the ability to read them, to study them, to verify them, and then to discern whether they belong in this book or not. A man who opens a Strong's Concordance and says, well, this word in the Greek, shut up. You don't compare. Uh, Lancelot Andrews is one of the King James translators. Every single summer, okay, I want you to get the full... I want you to fully understand this. Every single summer, he learned an entirely new language. He could read it. He could write it. He could speak it. Every single summer. What do you do with your summers? <laughs> One of the, William Tyndale, who produced uh, the, the, the 75% of William Tyndale's English translation from Greek to English, is in your King James Bible. That man graduated Cambridge College when he was 13 years old. What were you doing at 13? Okay, now let's go back to the man standing here who tells you, well, in the Greek, this word is, so you're telling me you understand the Greek better than Lancelot Andrews? That's just one man. There were 50 King James translators just like him. And you're questioning them? And you you want me to listen to you over them? (laughs) I don't think so. Sorry. (laughs) When when you graduate college, Cambridge College, at 13, and you learn more than gender studies and, and female dance theory, but you get an actual education, then maybe I might be interested in your opinion. Until then, I'm not interested. You're not like those men. The men that God assembled... To translate this book, it was the greatest assembly of linguistic scholars the world has ever seen. These were not just a bunch of deadbeats that God decided, "Eh, I guess I'll use them. It was an incredible assembly of men, godly men. Now, they came from different backgrounds. They didn't all believe the same thing, but that served to strengthen the word of God because the man with the Anglican background and the man with the Church of England background couldn't put their beliefs in the book because they had 49 other men they had to contend with and they did contend. This wasn't a friendly thing. If you put something in that book, 
you had to go before them and answer as to why you chose to translate it that way. And then men just as knowledgeable as you in translating were going to beat you to death until you could explain why this is, this is correct. I mean, we're talking about a, an intense situation. And, and, and so now you have today men who don't, don't even speak. They took one semester of Greek in a seminary school, and now they think they have more authority to translate the Bible or to correct the Bible than Lancelot Andrews or William Tyndale. Well, you can have it. I'm going to stick with this book. So, with all that, the preservation of the Old Testament. I want to show you an example of preservation from the Word of God. Look at 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. And this is a very instructive passage. It's almost hard to read. And not think about yourself and the dangers ahead. <clears throat> We're going to read verses 11 through 23, starting in verse 11. Zedekiah was one and 20 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 11, 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and humbled not himself. Okay, now, Zedekiah, this is not a good start. What happened to Zedekiah? God sent his word to Zedekiah. Zedekiah, Zedekiah said, I don't care what you say. I'm not doing it. God told the king of Israel, which was Zedekiah, I want you to submit yourself to Nebuchadnezzar when he comes knocking at your gate. Zedekiah said, no, I'm not doing it. Look back at the passage, verse 11. Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of who? Jeremiah shows up and says, Zedekiah, this is what God says. Zedekiah said, I don't care. I'm not doing it. Okay, it continues. Verse 13. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. So God said, Zedekiah, is what I want you to do. Judah has so violated my word, I'm sending you into captivity. You're leaving Jerusalem. I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, to your gate, and you and my people, Judah, you need to submit to that king. Zedekiah said, no, I'm not doing it. He rebelled against God. He humbled not himself. Do you see the connection here? In order to be obedient to the word of God, you have to humble yourself. Because God might be asking you to do something you really don't want to do. So then you've got to decide, am I going to rebel against God? Am I going to refuse to humble myself? Or am I going to do what God says? Because God is right. God's word is true. All his works are done in truth. <laughs> I want to do what God says, even when it's hard. Okay? Zedekiah refused. Judah refused. And let's look at what happened. Verse 14. And moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after the abomination of the heathen. And that, to me, perfectly describes the church today. 
They would rather act like the world, live like the world. They would rather transgress against God and participate in ungodly idolatry rather than obey God and live a a victorious Christian life. So what else did they do? And they polluted the house of the Lord. And that is 100% going on. And it's not the purview of this class, so I won't go into the details of it. And some of you would be very angry if I did. But Christians participate in more paganism than they realize because of what we were talked about earlier. They're not intellectually honest. They just jump right in and they participate in things that they have no business participating in. And we're not going to go into the details of those things. You, you know, Maybe we'll talk about it later. But they polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hollowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes. Who knows what betimes means? Anybody? Again? No. Betimes means early and repeatedly. So long before we get to what God's about to say, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, begging these people, please submit to my word before I have to deal with it. You can only push God so far, and he's going to intervene, and it's not going to be good. Everybody assumes that God loves me so much. I mean, what would he do to me? You keep disobeying his word, and you're going to find out what he'll do to you, and it's not good. Now, you're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to lose your place in heaven. You can lose your reward, but we're not even talking about that. God said, if I don't chastise you, then you are bastards. You don't have a father in heaven. If you keep living contrary to the word of God and refuse to humble yourself and you keep rebelling against what God said, you might cause God to have to step in and deal with it and it will not be good. Now, he'll do it because he loves you. He'll do it because he wants to correct you. He'll do it because he wants to steer you in the right direction. And that is his purpose. It's not punishment. Your sins are paid for. God's not going to punish because of your sin, he's going he's gonna to chastise you to move you in the right direction. Do you understand the difference? All right, now look back at verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent uh, to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against the people. What does that next phrase say? That is the scariest phrase to me in all the word of God. These people push God to a point. He said, I have no remedy left. There is nothing left that I can do. So now I'm going to have to step in and I'm going to have to deal with these people. I'm not sending another prophet. If I do, it's going to be to tell them what's coming. And that's what Jeremiah's job was. Jeremiah was sent to tell these people, you're going into captivity. God is angry with you. He's tired of you polluting his temple, profaning his word, rebelling against him, stiffening your neck. Hardening your hearts. So now he's going to do something about it. And there's no other remedy. You're going to go to a point where you say, okay, I'm sorry. No, it's too late. 
You cross that threshold, you cross the line, God is going to step in and you're about to feel the results of your choices. God had compassion on you when he sent somebody way back here to say, brother, sister, we need to talk about some choices you're making, some things you're doing, the way you're living. Let me show you from the word of God how to fix these things. I don't need that. I don't care what you say. I don't care what God says. Now, nobody says that. But when you get angry, when someone tries to show you what God says, that's what you're doing. And you're going to reach a point. There is no remedy. Now, Jerusalem, whose city is that? That's God's city. The temple, whose temple is that? That's God's temple. God said, I put my name in that temple. It's mine. Judah, whose people is that? That's God's people. Where did Jesus come from? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Okay, well, let's see what God does. Verse 17. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, that's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary. He slew them. Who brought him there to do that? God did. This wasn't a sudden incidental thing. God sent that man to kill those people. Are, 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 you, are you getting the depth of this? Okay, there's no remedy. I'm taking people out. That's what God said. All right, it, but it, it gets worse, unfortunately. Uh, he slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion. Now, what, what did it say just a couple verses back? He showed compassion. I'm trying to help you. Okay, you cross the line. There is no remedy. My compassion is gone. I'm done. It's over. So he showed he had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age and gave all into his hand. Verse 18, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of the princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Who brought them? God, God had Nebuchadnezzar take them. God brought them to, to, to Babylon, took them out of the house. Then what did he do with the house? Look at verse 19. And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the places thereof with fire and destroyed all the godly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia. Now, this captivity... They were taken by the Babylonian king. That king was eventually taken by the king of Persia. All right. The time from, from here to here is 70 years. God sent those people into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Several people were killed. Of all ages, of all sexes, of all genders, whatever, whatever it is you identify as, you didn't escape. They all died. The ones that did escape were taken into captivity in Babylon. For 70 years, 
The temple is burned to the ground. The vessels of God are gone. The wall is broken down. The city is destroyed. So then, where is the word of God at this time? (laughs) Who knows? Who has a clue? Everybody's taken. Everybody's gone. We don't know what they got to take with them. Now, I would guess, and you can, you can see when you get to the book of Daniel, that Daniel was reading from the prophet Jeremiah. So they had something. But the word of God, I mean, everything that pertained to God that Israel knew of was just burned to the ground and destroyed and stolen. It's over. It's gone. Right? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 20, And them that escaped from the sword carried he away into Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore ten years. That's seventy years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and put also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me and hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people, the Lord his God be, excuse me, be with him and let him go up. So Persia, Cyrus takes over. When Cyrus takes out Babylon, he assumes control of Judah. Judah, the people we've been reading about. Israel, after Solomon, was split into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, which is made up of ten tribes. It's called Israel. So those ten tribes in the northern kingdom, it's called the kingdom of Israel. In the south, you had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and that, that kingdom is called Judah. Okay, so it's, it's not to be mistaken with the tribe specifically. This is the kingdom. All right, that kingdom was taken by God into captivity. Now, long before this, Israel, the northern kingdom, had been taken, about a hundred years before, had been taken into captivity by Assyria. So they were already gone. God, God is just, I'm taking my people out. Now, when this, when this took place, when Nebuchadnezzar came, Israel no longer has a king or a sacrifice or rights to the land. Not until God sends them back. And that little group of people in the Middle East today, that is not God's Israel. Those people are there. When this happened, when God... So, so the northern kingdom's already gone. Now the southern kingdom is gone. Now the entire world is in the hands of the reign of the Gentiles. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. That's what that image in the book of Daniel is all about. The Gentile powers that come along, and they now reign and rule the world. Israel, Judah can't even go back. We just read, who sent Judah back to, to Jerusalem, Cyrus, a Gentile king. 
He told him, I want you to go back. I want you to rebuild the temple. And we're not, we're not going to read it, but in, I believe it's in Ezra chapter 1. He said, here's the limits. You can build it this size. They live in Jerusalem by permission of the Gentiles. The people who live there today live in Jerusalem or in Israel by permission of the United Nations. They can't even defend themselves without having to go to the United Nations and explain, why are you being so mean to the Muslims who are trying to to abolish you? (laughs) Be nice to them. Well, they're killing our people. Well, that's no excuse. They, They can't do anything without permission from the Gentiles until that rock comes and smashes that image and establishes his kingdom. And that rock is Jesus Christ. So un, until, that all, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, they have no king, they have no sacrifice. They don't, they don't even get to live in their land without permission from the Gentiles. Okay, now imagine what this has done to their culture, their language, their, their, their background, their religion. Where's the word of God through all this? You got, you got people who belong to Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that the, where, where Jesus is going to come from, bowing down to images in Babylon and in Persia. They, they get back to Jerusalem and we, they find out that the Levites have married Gentile women, which is unbelievably ungodly. It was written in the law. How come they didn't know that? Where's the word of God during all this time? Is it lost? Is it gone? So, look at Ezra chapter 3. Let's find out. Ezra chapter 3 picks up where, uh, Ezra chapter 1 picks up where 2 Chronicles left off. Ezra chapter 1 opens up with the, the, the decree of King Cyrus. And so Judah is gathered together. Cyrus went and accounted for all the vessels that they took, that, that Babylon took, gave them back to Judah. Zerubbabel the, the, is appointed governor. He's appointed governor. Who appoints governors? Israel wasn't given a king and sent back to live in their land. They were given a governor by permission of King Cyrus and said, okay, go build the temple the way I tell you to build it. And so they went back. But what I want you to see, the, the, the point here, and what's so amazing to me, and why we can trust the Word of God, let's look what happens. Read verses 1 through 6. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered themselves together as one man to where? Jerusalem. So Judah is in Jerusalem. They haven't been there for 70 plus years at this point. And now they're home. What are they going to do? Verse 2, then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon. What does that say? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they get back to Jerusalem. It's time to rebuild the altar. And they're like, well, who knows how... Anybody see that altar? I mean, we got a few old men here who, who were children when we went into captivity, but they're 70 plus years old now. Can you tell us how to build this altar? No. You go back to the Word of God, you open the law of Moses, and you find out how God said to build that altar. The Word of God was not lost. 
They get back and they go right back to the Word of God and do what it says. God will preserve His Word. It doesn't matter who burns what, who destroys what, what Gentile power is in control. God will preserve His own Word. Now, that, what that doesn't look like is, it's up to me. There, there's a place for that. God's people have a place, have, have a place of usefulness in this preservation. We're going to look at that, Lord willing, when we get to it. But if you fail, or if I fail, does that mean, well, God's going to be like, oh, why did I depend on them? <laughs> he just lost my word. No. God's word is not going to disappear off the face of the earth. The earth will disappear before God's word. Think about that. So here these people go on 70 years under Gentile captivity, very harsh Gentile captivity, forced to worship and live and speak like Babylonians, then like Persians for the short time that Persia had them. But when they get sent back home, what's the first thing they do? They open the word of God. And they pick up right where they left off. The Word of God is always available to anybody that wants it. Look at Ezra, no, excuse me, look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah and Ezra go hand in hand. You'd be surprised how much interconnection there is between these Old Testament books and these Old Testament prophets. Um, You know, Ezra, Nehemiah. So you have the end of Second Chronicles, which introduces you to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are the two that are sent back to Ezra to rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the wall and to help, help rebuild the security of the city. And then the prophets that stirred their hearts to do that are Haggai and Zechariah. And so you have all this interconnection. And then, and then through the course of that 70 years, the book of Daniel takes place. The Bible is unbelievably interlinked and interconnected. You just got to get in and, and study it. It's amazing what you'll find out. It's incredible. Now, Nehemiah 8, let's read verses 1 through 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. Now, remember, this is our context. These people just came back from captivity. And here they are, they're opening the Word of God. It's not lost. It's not gone. They didn't say, well, let's come up with a new method. Let's let's come up with a new Bible. We can just kind of make our own and, and, you know, we'll we'll, we'll make it better than the old one. Let's, 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 you know, have some modern ideas. Let's have dancing girls and light shows and... And contemporary, I don't want to use that old music. If you, if you go back to Ezra chapter 3, and you read further in, in that chapter, they began singing, and you know where they looked to to figure out how to sing to God? David. God's people who tried to do things in a godly way never looked forward to something modern and different. They always looked back. What's the Bible say? How did Moses do it? How did David do it? Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do. We're going to follow the word of God. You have all these churches in America. They say, "Oh, this is not your grandma's church." Well, then I don't belong there. I want my grandma's church. I don't want what you're offering. You can have it. It's garbage. It's watered down. It's useless. It's nothing. 
I want a man who's going to stand in front of me and open this book and tell me what it says so that it can address my life so that I can have a happy marriage, I can be a good husband, I can be a good father, I can be a good employee, I can be a good brother, I can be a good... Whatever it is, it's addressed in this book. And if I don't have somebody who's going to open it up and say, thus saith the Lord, well, then what's it going to do for me or you? You need to be confronted with the words of this book. Every church service should be a confrontation. God should be pointing at something and saying, (laughs) talking to you. Instead, half the people are sitting there, man, I wish my cousin was here. He needs to hear this. (laughs) No, you need to hear it, and then you need to do something with it. I need to hear it, and I need to do something with it. And so... That's the purpose of the Word of God. So so these people have opened the law of Moses. Look at verse 2. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. How many of you want to be in that church service? Half the people will be mad and would have left. I don't know why that church preaches so long. I don't know who they think they are. Moses read from morning to midday. Paul preached till midnight. Y'all would have left a long time ago and said, that guy is crazy. Somebody fell out of the window and nearly died. So... But the the word of God is precious. It's important. I'm not suggesting Pastor Paul should make the church service the, the whole day. Uh, you know, this, my, my wife is pregnant. She needs to eat. There's, you know, there's, a, there's, there's things going on. You know, I, pre- I appreciate the schedule. But if you can't sit for a couple of hours and hear somebody preach the word of God to you, you've got a problem. Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive. Oh, wow. Who knows what that means? Yes, sir. They were focused. They weren't thinking, I hope my pigs are okay. (laughs) Did I get that matake that I was supposed to get? No, they are listening to Ezra. They are listening to the word of God. They are focused on the word of God. They are attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. Did you know that was in the Bible? That's that's what we do. We have a pulpit. You respect that pulpit because a man stands and opens the word of God and teaches you from the word of God. It's a respectable thing. Now, you'll find some people, well, the, the, altar, the, 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 the desktop in front of you is not the pulpit. You stand on the pulpit. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. You know, just okay. And Ezra the scribe stood upon the pulpit of wood which they, they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood uh, Mattathiah, and Shema, and Ananiah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and on his left, Pediah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hasham, and Hashbadena. That's a good name if anybody's expecting. <laughs> My wife keeps asking me for names, so I, I come up with these type names. Hoping she'll stop asking me, but she doesn't stop asking me. So, yeah. Zechariah and Meshullam, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. That's what you're supposed to do. 
you open the word of God. You don't stand there and give a homily and give a speech and, and let me tell you how to better your life. No, open the word of God and preach it. Don't be a coward. Don't be, don't be weak. Teach the word of God. All right, that's what Ezra's doing. Uh, so in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, and all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So these are people, they, they just came from captivity. They haven't heard many of them words and ideas like this in 70 years. And a man opens that book, stands in front of them, and he begins to expound unto them the word of God, and they fall on their faces. When was the last time the word of God brought you to your knees, much less your face? Does it mean anything to you? Or is it just a, a book of words? I mean, if this is the word of God, which is our contention here, is what we, we intend to prove throughout this semester, does it do anything for you? Do anything to you? Has it had any impact, any effect on your life? These people are listening from morning to, a mid, to midday, attentively, and they end up on their face worshiping God. That, that amazes me. That convicts me. I, I love this book, but not enough. I need to love it more. I need to be concerned more. I need to study it more. I need to be in it more. I need to read more. I need to memorize more. This is the word of God. I mean, think about that. People get a poster signed by some fool who doesn't even know their name. What was your name again? Oh, okay. <laughs> but God wrote you an entire book and you just, just kind of throw it aside. I'll get it Sunday when I need it. <laughs> it's the word of God. <clears throat> Look at verse 7. Also, Jeshua and Bani, and Sherebiah, that's a good one, and Jamin, and uh, Akub, that sounds like a Ugandan name, (laughs) (laughs) Shabbatai, Hadijah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused, now listen to this, caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place, so they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. They didn't interpret it, they didn't translate it, they helped people understand exactly what God said. Well, how do you interpret that passage? I don't care how you interpret that passage. You don't interpret the word of God, you believe what it says. That's, that's, that's the key. And that's, that's what divides even our own brethren. They say, well, the way, the way I understand this passage. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you missed that part where the Bible said it's of no private interpretation. I don't care about your understanding of the passage. What does it say? It, if you had a child and you told that child, go clean the floor. What would you do if they said, how do I interpret that? 
<laughs> let me see. You would say, let, let me help you interpret it by getting my belt out <laughs> and, and applying some understanding to the seat of knowledge. You meant what you said. There's nothing to interpret. God meant what he said. Not your sleazy way of trying to sneak around what he said by interpreting the word of God. How do you interpret this verse? I don't care how you interpret the verse. Teach me what it says. Give me the sense of what it says. Help me to understand what it says. Pick the verse apart and help me know what it means, what it says. And we live in a world where men cannot do that, and it's a shameful thing, and I hate it. But that's where we are, and that's what I hope to combat by teaching a class such as this. I don't want to hear your, your, your Greek theories, and I don't want to hear your interpretations. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, then stand in that pulpit and open that book and teach God's people what the book says. And that's it. And if you can't do that, then go get a real job and stop pretending to be a Bible teacher. Because you're not. <clears throat> you're confusing people. You're misleading people. You're misguiding people. This book means what it says. And I guarantee you, from this day forward, if you will approach the Bible with that level of simplicity, it will come alive to you. It will be an amazing book because you learn to believe what it says. You're not constantly trying to figure out, oh, I don't know what the hidden meaning in this passage is. There is no hidden meaning. This is not a, co a book of codes. It's the Word of God. Believe it. Trust it. All right. Now this next section, so that, that's an example of, of God preserving his own word through the worst of situations. Now, Christians have been treated horribly throughout the centuries. You, you have an entire period of history called the Dark Ages, when the Roman Catholic Church was in charge of the entire world. Now think about this. You claim to belong to Jesus Christ, and in the period of history where you had the reign, it's called the Dark Ages. Do, do you see the problem there? <laughs> they murdered people relentlessly if you didn't believe what they told you. And you didn't do what they told you. And so anyone who tried to stick with this book throughout that time, you died. You were killed for it. But no matter how hard they tried to get rid of the word of God that existed at that time, they couldn't. Because it wasn't the people they were killing that was preserving this book. Who was preserving this book? God was. If they could have got their hands on God, <laughs> they'd have killed him. <laughs> But they can't. So I'm going to trust God. And even if they come and they take my physical life, I'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So have at it. All right. So this next section 
After the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple and the people were taken captive. Seventy years, God's word is not lost. Over time, the scribes would faithfully reproduce God's word in written form. Okay, that's very important. And the, the, when we get to it, the method these people used to reproduce the word of God, it was incredible. It, it just, you can't even imagine it. Wait till we get to it and begin to describe it. You will be blown away at the care and, and, the, and the, the systems they put in place to make sure that when they reproduce the word of God, it was perfect. So these scribes were given names throughout, throughout history. The earliest of these were the Tanaim. All right, now these, these are Hebrew scribes who are given the job to reproduce in manuscript form the Word of God. Okay, you know, we, <clears throat> today we have notebooks. You have no idea what an unbelievable convenience that is. These people did not have that. So, so you, and we're going to try to get, we're going to get into a lot of those details. This word means teachers. That, that's the, the literal meaning of the word. All right, now, they took great care, and again, we'll, we'll go into detail about it later, to copy God's word. As the document was used for reading and study, it would begin to wear out. So it must be reproduced in order to maintain accuracy and availability. They didn't wait for the document to be worn out to then try and reproduce it. That their job was to, was to just create these documents so that it's, it's available. So that as, as this one wore out, because paper was so expensive, things like ink was so expensive that they did everything they could to preserve the Word of God, and they did it, <laughs> when we get to the detail, they would go so far, I, I might mention it here, when they finished that document, they had a word count and a letter count of how many words and how many letters should be in the document if they missed one, they destroyed the entire document and started over. So when they finished, they would count every single word, every single letter to make sure it had the exact same number of words and the exact same number of letters. And if they were off by one, it's no good. Destroy it. Start over. <laughs> How would you like to have that job? Anybody? No? Okay. You'll, you'll keep your current job? Okay. I understand. So um, these scribes not only copied the actual text, but they also put their oral traditions into writing. These oral traditions are called Mishnah. All right. Now, the oral traditions mostly are not the word of God. Why do I say that? There are times... Uh, you know, they're, they're, I forget the passage. I'll try to look it up. Maybe we can talk about it in a future class. Um, you know, the, the scribes were, were tempting Jesus, and um, they were talking about something from the Old Testament. And people say, oh, we searched the Old Testament. That's a contradiction in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. Well, it didn't say it was written in the Old Testament. It said it was spoken by the prophets. That's a key detail. Jesus said it was spoken by the prophets. 
He didn't say it was written by the prophets. So some of these oral traditions may have been some of the, the, the words of the prophets that, did, that were not written down. Now, if it's not in the word of God, God didn't want us to have it. So it's not like, oh, no, we're missing something. No, we're not missing something. God didn't want it in his book. It's not there. So that's just the way it goes. But when somebody comes to you and says, see, this is a, a contradiction. That's not written in the Old Testament. It didn't say it was written. It said it was spoken. Do you write? I mean, do you understand the difference between speaking and writing? <laughs> that's kind of a key difference. So. The Mishnah was not the Word of God, but it details certain oral traditions over the years, some of which may have been relevant to God's Word. Again, Jesus said a few times, it hath been said. That's important. So when you're reading the Word of God and you see Jesus saying something like that, pay attention to it. Because if you go looking for it in the Old Testament, it may not be there. It hath been said, and, and so that's, that's important. This indicates certain teachings of the prophets did not make it into the written Scripture, but the Jews carried them on in oral fashion. Now, the Tanaim, these guys here, <clears throat> were followed by another group called the Amorium. Expositors is what this word means. So, first you had these guys, and then over time they kind of faded away, and then these guys took over the, the copying of the Word of God. And, and, it, and it just continued on throughout history. Um, they followed in the tradition of the Tanaim scribes and very carefully produced copies of God's word. They also produced what came to be known, as a word you hear a lot, as the Talmud. You may know what that is. You may have heard that word before. The Talmud. Huh? Egypt. <laughs> Now the, the, so people often come and say, what is the Talmud? Or do you know the Talmud says this? Well, the Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah. So I don't care what it says. It's a commentary. And what is the Mishnah? The oral traditions. So the Talmud is nothing but a commentary on their oral traditions. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. So we don't focus on that. We don't, we're not worried about that. Now, these guys were followed by a very, 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 very important group of people called the Masoretes. Anybody ever heard of the Masoretic text? Masoret. E-T, so it's M-A-S-O-R-E-T-E-S, even though that may not look like it. That's what that says. <laughs> All right, so these men produced what came to be known as the Maser, Maseretic text. This is very important. All of these are, but this, this, this text is where the Old Testament for your King James Bible came from. Primarily. Not exclusively. That's important to note. The, the King James Bible didn't exclusively come from the Masoretic text, and it didn't exclusively come from the Textus Receptus. But you talk to most people, and they're like, oh, it came, that's where it came from. Well, <laughs> sort of. Not, not in totality, no. Um, this, this text is the foundation for the Old Testament of the King James Bible. 
the Masoretes took great pains to very carefully and perfectly reproduce the Old Testament text. They were unbelievably careful and reproduced God's word without error. Now, again, we're going to discuss them more later. This is just a high-level overview. But they, they put a very difficult and strenuous process in place to make certain every document they produced was absolutely perfect. They would count the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book, and it had to be exactly the same every time or the entire document was discarded. When the printing press was made available, the Masoretic text was the first Hebrew document. You're going to find when we get to the, uh, to the printing press, it, it became a tool for the Word of God, basically. Even today, the Word of God is probably printed more than anything else all around the world. I mean, God's people so took advantage of this. One of the first things to be printed was a a Bible, and the first Hebrew item to be printed was the Masoretic text. That's that's incredible. The first book to be printed were the Psalms in 1477. So this was the first Hebrew text to be printed. The first text of that was the Psalms. And it was printed in when? 1477. In 1488, the entire Hebrew Bible was printed. The whole thing, finally, in 1488, was printed with the printing press. A second edition was printed in 1491. So 1491 was the second. And then in 1494 was the third. Now, the reason this is a big deal, you know, you go downtown and you pay a printer. And, you know, I have Brother Waibi go and have our tracks printed and he'll print 5,000 tracks in you know, a day or so, right? That's incredible. Well, they couldn't do that. You know, we run it through a machine, and it just spits them out. They are literally pressing it. It's called a printing press because they were pressing it. They had this massive mechanism where they had to literally put their body into it to press it into the paper. So you couldn't just, can you give me 100 copies of the Word of God? It's going to take me 80 years, but, <laughs> but uh, I'll do what I can. <laughs> this third edition was used by Martin Luther to produce, to produce the German Bible, which is comparable to the King James Bible. It's almost exactly the same. So that's, a, that's another Bible. So the, this third edition was used by Martin Luther to create the German Bible. It still exists today, and it is unbelievably comparable to the King James Bible. Now, if you say that in some circles, they might bite your head off. <laughs> so only the King James Bible, that's the only Word of God that ever existed in the history of Bibles. No, that's not true. It is the perfect Word of God, and it does exist, exist now in the English language. How does that help a German? <laughs> it doesn't. 
But Martin Luther went through the pains and, and some other guys followed him to produce a, a very accurate Bible. I, I don't know enough about it. I don't know enough about the German language to say that it was the perfect word of God, but it is unbelievably comparable. So that's a blessing. Now, as you can see, even in times of destruction, total destruction, God will preserve his own word. You can trust him. So why not try it? Trust the Lord. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.